0: Welcome to the EOUC talk show. Our goal of the show is to introduce you to the most interesting people with the most interesting ideas. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Antonsen. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: We're glad to have you here. You know, uh, we were very impressed. Uh, so we, we, we attended your presentation uh, almost a month ago. And something that will be very, so we usually attend a lot of talks and, and things on campus from any department, any field. And something that you were able to do very well is your presentation. And there was something about how you did it that kept us very engaged, maybe the storyline. So maybe if you have a strategy, just walk us through how you did that presentation. And, and it really was, even though personally, I knew very little about the topic you presented, at the mm-hmm. end, I could actually understand what you were thinking where what you wanted to do. So would you just walk us through that, like through your thought process through that.
1: Absolutely. Well, first off, thank you because it really, in a profession like being a professor, you do a lot of talking in front of people, even so throughout your training, normally a professor will have a PhD. Sometimes there's postdoctoral training too. So this public speaking was actually something that I, through my undergraduate training realized made me really 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 nervous. Right. And so when I got to graduate school, that intensity was, you know, heightened tenfold because there's a lot more pressure to perform and, you know, say the right thing and, you know, not embarrass yourself and you you also have to be talking in front of people who know a lot about right. what you're talking about. So, yeah, so I'll say <laughs> giving talks did not necessarily come easy to me in the beginning and so that's what I have done through the years is practice. I figure out what works for me, what helps, what what I can do when I'm generating my slide deck to help cue me into what I'm trying to say on a particular slide and kind of keep that story flowing. I've also taken a lot from watching people that are good speakers mm. and understanding like, oh my gosh, what they just did right there I can use that and I can you know try at least to incorporate those kind of tactics so and then the the biggest thing for me is I was not really great at it to begin with and so I think of myself as when I'm an audience member and I was when I started grad school I started right out of undergrad did not have any real intense experience with research so starting graduate school and kind of just coming right out of undergrad without a ton of preparation, I kind of got hit in the face with like, this is grad school (laughs) and I felt always out of place, always like, oh my gosh, there's so much I need to catch up on. I'm still kind of learning the ropes. And so it was hard for me to really feel like if I were in an audience for a talk, like you both were, when I didn't know anything about it, I just felt like, oh my gosh, I, I need to do better, right? I need to teach myself more. Until I started to realize a lot of other people in the audience felt exactly like I did. And that's how I frame my talks now, is I want everybody who knows you know, very, very little about the topic to get something from what I'm delivering and to still make it relevant for the experts who are on the other end of the spectrum who know a lot about what I'm talking about and I can also engage with them. So. Yeah, it's it's taken a lot of work and a lot of time for me to develop these skills, and it's something I'm still still learning and still perfecting, for yeah. sure.
0: And I, and I think uh, being able to make it entertaining and and also inclusive oh. in a way that that's also a an art. It's a, it's a skill that very few people have.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of scientists, a lot of people who know a lot and are brilliant and the communication social skills are not always there and and you have to work on it right it's it's not something that might come naturally to to some people and so i do consider myself more of an extrovert i'm i'm very visually oriented too so i like to make my slides visually engaging it's something that anchors me as a talk as a speaker throughout the talk but also when I sit through talks, I enjoy slides that you can tell people have thought about, you know, how does this look when you project it, rather than let me just convey the most basic, you know, pieces of information. Making it enjoyable for me is also part of the fun too.
2: How often you get the feedback from people, like the people you present in front of? Because I'm sure that also helps you a lot in knowing what to do better. What to yes,
1: like. yes. So it depends sometimes, you know, from from my colleagues, it might just be that they're asking particular questions that I can glean like, okay, maybe I should have delivered this portion a little bit better because they wouldn't be asking me this question if I had made it clear to begin with. Um, sometimes it's more of like, okay, they're asking about this portion, I should include more of that in the talk and engage more with that you know, angle. Um, but yeah, it's it's not always often that you do get real feedback, especially when it's just, you know, the, the further you get along in a career like this, the more often you're invited to give a talk. And then whoever invites you to give a talk is going to, of course, be like, thank you so much. Your talk was excellent. Right. right so right. You're not yeah, necessarily yeah. going to get, you know, really, really constructive feedback in mm-hmm. that sense, necessarily. And a lot of
0: it is indirect. So you have to it yes. up in, in a sense you know it, 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 it reminds me of a, of a, of a, of a phrase that people don't know what they want and you need to mm-hmm. kind of tell them why and, and sometimes even people are asking questions also an indirect sign that maybe the way how you presented it was in a way that they, they just did not care at all for instance
1: right <laughs> so
0: a lot of the uh, very indirective things so you, you mentioned that public speaking is something you're still learning
1: mm-hmm. but
0: what do you feel like you've mastered and what other things you feel like you're, you're still learning
1: mm. Gosh, uh, I, I think I would hesitate to say that I've mastered really anything. And that's that's part of the fun of a job like this is doing research and teaching and being involved with mentoring students. And, you know, I'm as a pre-tenure faculty, I'm pretty early on in my track. Um, it's it's a lot of learning for me. So it's, it's almost like at each stage of my training. You know, when I went from high school to college, I, you know, was in for a bit of a a different setting of like okay got to get used to college now because it's quite different from high school and then once you know going from college to grad school very very different still learning the ropes um from grad school to postdoc was actually really enjoyable because it was a lot of the uh, things that i was doing and mastering as a graduate student and i didn't have any classes to take and i could actually you know really get in sink my teeth into things that i hadn't had time for before and now being a professor it's kind of back to that same like, oh, my gosh, I'm the new person in the room. There's so much that I don't know yet. And, and half of that is just learning the ropes of how things work on campus, um, learning how, how to write a good, compelling grant proposal, mm-hmm. which uh, funding agencies to write to, you know, where my work will be will hit the right targets, who is going to be interested in doing work like this, who will be collaborators that I would wanna work with. So there's just constantly, constantly things that are shifting and changing and and getting more and more advanced and exciting too. There's new equipment, new you know approaches to the science every day. So it's on the one hand, a lot to, to feel like you have to keep up with, but on the other hand, it's one of those jobs that every day is, Kind of new and different and exciting. So, I think that's that's one really fabulous thing about saying that I'm. I don't necessarily consider myself a master yet right. in anything, and I'm not sure if I will ever really get to that point. And maybe that's kind of, kind of why I've I've found my way into a profession like this.
0: You know, like sometimes we look up to you know people like you, professors, and we feel like, oh my god, these people must know everything. Yeah. But uh, oftentimes they use they have the same feelings as, yes, as students. Yes,
1: absolutely. I would absolutely emphasize that <laughs> because there's you know there's at the end of the day this is something you come across no matter what profession it is of of that hesitancy to approach the person that you think knows everything and you're the you know person who's just getting into it or just doesn't know enough and most of the time that person's a human just the same they have a family they have you know life problems and they've struggled in their life before and there's you know concepts and and relationships and things about that person that are the just the same as you and that's always I, I think one of the main things of of kind of being the professor right is
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm just the same as as any of the students that I teach right and and I also want to as much as I can when I'm mentoring or or teaching, whether it's in the classroom or in my lab or whatever the setting is, is to kind of break down that wall and say, "Hey, I'm approachable. I'm a person." And the more conversations we have, the better it is for both of us. Right. And you know, the more I can do for you, and the more you can do for me, it's a it's a give and take on both ends.
2: What is the skill that you're trying to master or working on right now?
1: Oh goodness, there's so many. <laughs> so when. When you think about research, at least in my field, so I'm a neuroimmunologist. I do a lot of bench work, what we call bench work, wet lab work, um, you know, running assays and and doing you know molecular work at the bench. I also work with animals, so I I do biomedical research. So it's preclinical. So the idea is using animals to model human disorders. So I work with animals. So there's a lot of like hands-on work that goes along with that, and. When I um, was in my training period, so as a uh, graduate student or as a postdoc, it was a lot of that hands-on mm-hmm. and less of the writing, conceiving. Um, and so now it's totally flipped. It's I sit at my desk a lot more and use my brain <laughs> for you know trying to be creative, try, reading, writing. those are the things that it's taken me a little bit of a time to kind of feel more comfortable in the new role in the sense of half the time I just wanna go out into my lab, grab a pipette, you know, run an assay, put some headphones in, listen to a podcast, right? Like just totally zone out and do something like that because what I'm having to do right now is just constantly be on in the sense of I'm coming up with ideas thinking about what the next grant proposal should be what the next manuscript should be that i should publish and how to mentor my students how to how to create a lab environment that's conducive to this creativity and to also not lose sight of why we're here and why this is exciting and so yeah so the new skill i would say is being a good boss
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> is managing is, is always yes yeah, like no no amount of like textbook learning can teach you managing like you can read every book on managing but unless you actually do it you're not
1: yeah yeah. totally totally and it is I I tell my family a lot of times if because this is a a job that not a lot of people understand and it also looks different you know if you talk to a a history professor they're going to be telling you a lot of different things Mm -hmm. than I am telling you right now and what I tell my family is we're kind of running a small business so we're the accountants, we're the, you know, grant writers, we're the PR <laughs> firm, we're the HR firm, we're the, you know, recruiters, we're the, um, the actual scientists and the right. actual teachers as well. You know, we're all of those things. So that that part I'm trying to master, <laughs> trying and that, to learn. And that
2: idea of being interdisciplinary, I think that's something that needs to be put across more because I feel like people get too focused on their major and they yeah. they feel like, okay, if I'm doing this, then I'll, I'll only be doing this for the rest of my life. But that's not usually how it would pan out, right? Because right? they're, like all of these fields, like biology, physics, chemistry, right? They're all so interrelated mm-hmm. that even if I'm studying physics, at some point, I'm gonna have to rely on chemistry to maybe solve my equations Absolutely. or even biology to understand what's happening, right? But I think that notion of just being fixed to that one small world is, it's just like, It's not efficient, and I think having that idea that you you need to be interdisciplinary and Mm -hmm. focus on the other things that are connected to your field too is like very important.
1: Right, right, absolutely. We see that all the time, and and I try to teach that as well when I'm teaching physiology. I try to say, look, we're we're talking about biochemistry right now. We're talking about how oxygen and CO2 is regulated in the bloodstream and how gas exchange occurs and, and you know, what regulates hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen or right. for CO2. You know, all of that is relative to chemistry, to biochemistry, to also to the the bigger picture of how does respiration, you know, work in a mammal, in a, in a mammalian system. And yeah, you're absolutely right. When it comes to applying those skills to, to an actual profession, a lot of times... It doesn't matter how good you are at the, at the science of it, you still have to also be able to kind of function in a way of, of meeting deadlines, managing your time, interacting with people, being efficient as a group leader, but also a group member. Right. And yeah, it's, it's, the list goes on.
0: We touched on your research, and I do want to <laughs> get there. But before, and, um, before that, I'm really curious. You were born, now you're here. like what happened in between like what did you grow up doing that led you to what you're doing now like what do you think you were going to do
1: yeah yeah that's a great question and i actually really like answering this one because i think it's another one of those things that we're talking about viewing your professors as oh they know everything and they've you know this is what they do so they have to be an expert and we are experts but a lot of our paths meandered before we ended up where we were and i'm definitely one of those so i I went to college as a environmental kind of pursuing environmental science, but I was a biology major. Before I enrolled in a bachelor's of science program, though, I really highly considered a fine arts degree. So I almost went to design school wow. and could have just left all the science behind. Um, and I actually, my senior year of college, I had the opportunity to study abroad in Milan, Italy. And I chose that city because that's where the Last Supper is. Mm -hmm. And so I could see that in person. And it was, yes, it was just as awe-inspiring as as I anticipated. But it was my kind of chance. Either I could have graduated a semester early or just use the tuition dollars that I was expecting to spend anyway on this experience of a lifetime. And And it was that. So. What I did was I I did the first semester of my senior year abroad. And I just took psychology courses, photography class, art history. I did kind of all the, immersed myself in that art and design kind of world, exactly. Mm -hmm. And didn't do any science when I was there. And that was sort of a a litmus test for me in the sense of, do I want to do this or do I miss the science? And at the end of the day, I missed the science. And so when I came back, I thought, I, you know, I can always do science as a job, get a paycheck, and then do art on the side. And so that's what I went with. So I left college thinking, I'll probably get a master's degree. You know, I, I'm, in a, I'm a biology major, there's not a ton that I can do with that, at least with what I was interested in doing. Um, it's, it's not as easy to just walk right off with a bachelor's degree into a profession. Um, at least not with a biology degree most times. So I thought I'll get a master's degree. I don't know about this whole grad school thing, but I'll give it a try. Master's programs usually about two years. So I applied, I was interested in working with animals. So I had considered pre-vet for a while as well of going into veterinary school, realized that wasn't really for me. So by the time I decided on graduate school, I thought I'm really interested in animal behavior and animal welfare. And so I picked an animal sciences program. So I applied here and I applied to several other schools um, across the US and some of the other programs were a little more agricultural focused um, and less on the animal behavior. And so I got a call from, he's now the department head and also the head of the department that I'm now a faculty member in. And he was looking for a student to do the behavioral tasks that he had funding for through his grant and he uses pigs as an animal model. So I did a phone interview with him and I was immediately like, this sounds amazing, <laughs> let's do it. So I ended up here. Uh, I was a master's track when I first started. And as soon as I you know, kind of got to the end of my first second semester as a graduate student, I thought, I don't wanna stop doing this. I'd like to keep going. So I was able to switch my curriculum from the master's track to the PhD track, um, and so yeah, by the time I I was finishing up with my PhD, I I had considered so a lot of the one of the biggest questions in graduate school is do you go into academia or do you go into industry or government? Government's another one that doesn't mm-hmm. get as much hype as industry because industry's got the paychecks, right? <laughs> but I had kind of vacillated back and forth. And so a postdoctoral training is, is very much like a residency program would be for an MD or a DVM. And I thought, let's just do the postdoc because if I wanna go into industry, I can still do that at the end of that, but it's really hard to come back to academia if you don't do the postdoc. So I was really fortunate to get in touch with someone at the Ohio State University. They have a really great institute there that's in the psychoneuroimmunology field. And it was a different, a much different experience being on that campus for my postdoc as well, because it's, I was on the medical campus. And so I was right immersed in the hospitals. A lot of their animal housing is actually in the basement of some of the hospitals. So, you know, I'm seeing that kind of hubbub every day. And it was it was really a good experience because you can get a job as a faculty member in a college of medicine setting like that, as a tenure track faculty who primarily does research, and it's it's framed a little bit differently. And so I I get I got a good experience at that institute for kind of what am I looking for if I'm looking for a faculty position, and I I was interested in teaching, and so coming back here. um, The opportunity came up. It wasn't necessarily something that I was thinking, oh, I'm going to, you know, come back to my alma mater and become a faculty member. But there was an opportunity. And my husband and I actually, he's also a tenure track faculty member. So we were very lucky to get two tenure track positions as faculty members. It's not, it's really not, it's, it's hard. Let's put it that way to get two tenure track positions. So so we're here, and yeah, it's been it's been a great two years for me so far.
0: <laughs> what does he teach?
1: So he's Are in the kinesiology and community health department. He does um, he does he's also multidisciplinary. So he he kind of does exercise immunology and how exercise, physical health, or stress impacts intestinal microbiome and intestinal physiology.
2: Oh, so there's some overlap between your research. Yes,
1: yes, yes. There is a bit of overlap. So it's we never really get away from the science. (laughs) We Mm. talk science at work and we talk science at home. So, yeah, but it it is also it's really nice to have a partner who understands what it's like to be in the tenure track system and in academia. And he was a really fabulous anchor for me when I was in graduate school, coming in with really no idea <laughs> what was going on. I met him early on. He had already done his master's. And for me, he was just like worlds ahead of like, wow, that guy knows what he's doing. I don't know what I'm doing. So, you know, when we started our relationship, it was really fabulous for me to have him as sort of that anchor of, you know, and, and partner to be like, yeah, well, this is how things work. And, you know, I would suggest that you do this, maybe don't do this and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's it's been nice to have a partner and partner in crime in that way.
0: And that, in that, and, you know, it, it, it's, it's like you said, you know, in a, in a way that was a, you know, a, a blessing in a way that you guys ended up, you know, you guys met here, which is, mm-hmm. you know, unlikely. And then <laughs> you guys ended up coming back, which is also very unlikely. Right, right. So it's just weird how things work sometimes, but you know, it, it yeah, it was it was meant to be in a sense, like how you uh, decided not to do design, right? And you decided to do here, and then somehow, like everything just aligned for you to be here. So I, I find that, that very interesting because, like, what, like what, like what could be the purpose of of you being here at the university, for instance?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I often think about that too, and and it was really quite apropos actually so my husband had applied for an opening and then you know i i sent in my application after he had been kind of given his offer and then the pandemic hit and so i came for my interview here maybe not even a month before like the whole world shut down and so we were negotiating our positions here while the pandemic is raging. <laughs> and you know, we we accepted our positions, we moved, we bought a house, we bought a car, <laughs> like there there was a lot of things that were really just aligning for us, right juxtaposed to the fact that we're still in the middle of a pandemic. So it, it was it was also interesting in that sense of like, wow, we're really succeeding in all these, you know, career ways and, and life ways that we've always wanted. And what an odd time for all this to to come together.
0: Looking back, do you see that as a as as luck, as randomness, as a blessing? <laughs> How do you make sense of that?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's a lot of things. I think, you know, so establishing relationships and networking with people, maintaining those relationships is really important. And then and, and that's one of the major reasons why my husband and I are back here is because of the people that we met when we were here. And so a job opening became available in the same department that my husband had trained in during his PhD. And so he was one of the first people that the department notified saying, you know, we want you to apply for this position. And so it's things like that, really, that I would say, you know, there are there are tangible examples of how it, it pays off to, you know, make relationships, meaningful relationships with people when you have that opportunity. And to maintain them as well and not just for the leverage you know sense of things i'm not saying like oh well we we played our cards really well right, right it's right. it's just you know we didn't necessarily envision this either it was it's just things you know started kind of falling into place and you know the opportunity came around and and you know we we think about it in the same way we think about any other opportunity and and obviously we know people here we have we have those established relationships. We have an understanding of how how our departments work. We're both hired back into the same departments we were in when we were grad students. So I think for us we we had that opportunity for a unique experience and a unique perspective on being able to understand it and in some ways maybe even a leg up to folks that are applying to institutions that they're they're not familiar with yet. So so yeah, I think it's a lot of things. I think it's, you know. Kind of in the sense of playing your cards right but also to to roll with things when when those opportunities come around and and still do your due due diligence right of of picturing yourself there and figuring out what's what's right for you because if if this wasn't the opportunity we were looking for it wouldn't have benefited anybody if we said okay sure we'll you know we'll come but nobody was really you know looking for that so also do your due diligence in that sense of, you know, we wouldn't have come here if we didn't know that it was a good, a fabulous place to be, an R1 institution, you know, good teaching, good colleagues, good research, a good environment. So, so, yeah.
2: So you mentioned that you came back here to do your um, PhD, right? And how did you find your focus of research then? Because you mentioned you wanted to do something related to animal welfare. Right. But that still doesn't get us to what you're doing right now. So Yes, yes, yes. That's a up. good point. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I I will say honestly, the way I describe this to people is that I still didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Mm-hmm. So I ask people that
2: I think that's just a bad question. Like yeah. <laughs> like some people have like glorified stories like, Oh, I was I was six, I knew that I wanted right. to be like an astronaut or an engineer mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like sure. But <laughs> yeah. In some ways I think it's still glorified. Like you never know fully. Like you always yes. have these moments of doubts and like other things that, that can lower you in.
1: Some Absolutely. Direction. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's what I tell all, a lot of my students, even when they're still in grad school, because that was the case for me, is I was still figuring stuff out when I was in grad school. And so, you know, I I think having that open mind and also you learn so much about yourself going through training experiences or you know internships or just just as if you keep the door open for opportunities and experiences you'll learn a lot and especially if you put in the work the more you're going to get out of it too so i think the best way to describe how i came in as a student was very naive (laughs) very um not so much I'm trying to find the right term, not so much immature as much as just not. I hadn't really figured everything out yet. And so that was part of the experience for me. So I I thought, you know, animal behavior, animal welfare. I do do a lot of animal behavior still. And that is still very, very exciting for me uh, and a passion of mine. Um, the and the welfare I'm involved in every day, honestly, because anyone who works with animals, you have to abide by the the way that things have been designed for research. So we are equitable, or we are, um, you know, do, doing things with a very stringent set of rules to make sure that that welfare is maintained for those animals. And so, um, yeah, so I, I kind of have touched into both areas that i had been interested in in the first place without really knowing that that's the form that they would take so yeah and i think would i have been happy if i had gone to a different setting probably you know i i think that was kind of where i was at in my in my life that i probably would have been happy and excited about kind of doing anything that was within that you know bigger realm of things so so, yeah but then i never would have met my husband so <laughs> so yeah i that's the best way i can put it as it's just i at least for me it was it worked out because i i was able to still pursue what i was passionate about regardless um the really big important thing to keep in mind i would say for everyone is always tune in to yourself because if you're kind of thinking i'm just gonna see this through. I really am not happy, but I'm kind of I'm here now. And, you know, let's just finish it. I would say, especially for a graduate degree, it's that's your career, you know, you're you're investing in your career. So if you're not satisfied, if you're if you're kind of, you know, really thinking, I'm not sure I want to do this. That is really a time you're already an adult, you know, you're you're thinking about adult things of, you know, what your career path is, if you wanna start a family, you know, where you wanna move and settle and all those things, you start thinking about that around that time. So so for me, I I was interested in everything. If it happened that I really wanted to pursue something else, I probably would have finished with my master's and then gone on and pursued something else. So so yeah, that's a long winded way of answering yeah, answering you know, your question.
0: This is the second thing you mentioned that being in touch with yourself, knowing whether something is, is right for you. Mm-hmm. How do you actually know that? <laughs> like, how like how do you think of this question, and what yeah. do you actually do? Do you do know?
1: Yeah, Oof. yeah, that's a big one. So, <laughs> I I think I talk with a lot of people. So I talk with a, with I I have a very close family. I have three sisters. Wow. I'm also a twin, so I'm <laughs> really close with my twin sister. So, wow. for me, I probably have you know that one person who's just me and another body, right? So we're we're very close. And if there's anything that I have uncertainty about, I just call her and we talk it through and the same, you know, vice versa for her. Um, I do have, my other sisters are older than me too. So I've always looked up to them. They've always been those role models. And then my mom is just phenomenal. So she always instilled in us as women That sense of independence and sense of if you don't do it for yourself, no one else is going to do it for you. And that, you know, it's really, really important to be tuned in to your own happiness, your own mental health, making sure that you're making time for the things that you enjoy and don't get so caught up in in your work or, you know, whatever it is that that you can kind of lose yourself. So yeah, I, there's no easy answer in the sense of how how I know that I'm checking in with myself, other than I do I do make time, and it's really hard now when I have so much going on. Um, I can see the difference. I think is a good way of putting it as well of of when I've made time for myself. And for me, that the way that looks is doing yoga, reading a book, you know, taking time to cook, doing the things I enjoy, uh, exercising. Sometimes for me, the best thing to clear my head is just go out and you know do some sprints. You know, really run it out. I was a runner, and uh, you know, all growing up, and so I've I've always kind of been active that way, and it's a way for me to kind of you know exactly, yes. So so there's things that I do that may not be what everyone else does, right? So it's figure out what what do you enjoy, where do you feel most you, and make time for it, and tune into yourself and journaling has helped me in the past as well. It's something my twin sister does a lot. Um, and yeah, just talking things through with people as well. Of of even if you're talking on paper, right? You're you're writing something out. It's similar in the sense of you're you're kind of doing a mini therapy session with yourself or with whoever you're speaking with. So, yeah, it's it's a hard one to answer, but I would say just yes. the the big pictures make time. For whatever it is that feels right to you and be consistent about it.
0: Yeah, in, in a way how I see it is that you, you cannot really know, but in a way we all know already. Like yeah. it's like like when, when we ask a question, oh okay, you know, I need advice on something. Like in a way we do know the answer already. So mm-hmm. sometimes we, we we like we're just looking for self-validation or, or right. just like, you know, confirmation. And you know, I think that you know, anyone with a little bit more of self-belief. You know they know what they want they know what they love doing it is more it's, it's about uh you know kind of you know, tuning out the world and just listening mm-hmm. to, to your heart
1: yeah.
0: yeah i think a lot of societal factors do play a role in like
1: Whew.
2: i'm sure yes. you you, you <laughs> would have experienced a fair share of that too in deciding what you want to do right
1: so. yeah yeah though absolutely societal pressure is no joke um and the reason i was kind of reacting to what you're saying too, is the political climate right now in this country is polarized, right? And no matter which side you're on, mm-hmm. you can feel that. And right. so it's it's rough, I think, to be a human being on this earth. You know, we just, we're still really not over a pandemic. Right. Really political tensions across the world too. I mean, we're, there's wars ongoing in multiple countries around the world. It's really hard to be a person and go about your life without having that impact you. And a lot of times you shouldn't ignore it, right? You should be engaged, you should at least be aware. Um, But if you're too aware and too involved, it can overwhelm you as well. So yeah, I think there's there's a lot of that self-assuredness that you were referencing of tune into that as much as you can, if you can identify it. And especially if it means that you feel like there's societal pressure in one direction, but you'd rather go the other way, you're not the only one feeling that way. For, that's always something that I always think about is, and something that I've learned is, I can't be the only one who feels this way. And it's hard sometimes to remind yourself of that, but right. it's absolutely true. Um, and yeah, the societal pressures, no matter what it is and no matter what form it takes, no matter what society you're talking about, it's definitely real and it's it's hard to buck the system if if you're kind of in under that pressure
2: what has kept you going or doing these like challenging challenging times or what has kept you motivated like in your line of sight at your goal or whatever you're trying to achieve
1: yeah so i think the idea of how i approach what i research is kind of this is a factor of research, I think, Mm. just anyway, is that you're always trying to discover that next new thing. And it's not like I'm making groundbreaking discoveries Mm. or I'm like, hey, this is a protein that we (laughs) never knew about before, here it is. You know, I I don't do that kind of science, but there's still things that we don't know about. And that just makes me excited. And Mm. so I think even when it becomes challenging and especially when it becomes challenging, I like to kind of take a step back, and reassess, kind of put everything, spread everything out, and try to remove my own pre existing notions about those things or emotions about them or perspectives and see them for what they are. You know, if it's, oh my gosh, I have all these deadlines, or I'm trying to teach at the same time as doing research and grant writing and all these things, and it's overwhelming, the best thing for me is to, to take that step back and say, here's what I want out of this. And here's what I want for, for example, for the students that I teach, here's what I want for them. And if I'm not my best self, they're not getting what I want them to get. Right. And so that's that's one of the things that's helped to to overcome stressors. And it's so hard, it's really hard. I, I can sit here and talk through it, but that doesn't mean I'm really good at putting it to, into practice yeah. all the time. But yeah, I think that that there's always, For me, at least, I have enough of an assurance of this is exciting for me. This position that I'm in is exciting. And I get to do some really awesome stuff every day. And as long as I don't lose sight of that, that's enough to motivate me no matter what it is. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Step by step.
1: Yeah, exactly. And there are some days when it sucks, right? There's, There's definitely some times when you're like, what? you know, why did I sign up for this job? You doubt yourself. Yeah, yeah. right. Self-doubt for sure. Or it's just sort of like, oh my gosh, you know, little things that are kind of getting in the way, things you didn't expect, problems come up, you know, and and not every day is a fun day. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, there's way more fun days than there are non-fun days.
0: You know, is your twin sister an artist or a scientist?
1: Ooh, great question. So a little bit of both. She's, I would say, not scientist in the same kind of traditional way that Uh I'm labeled as a scientist, but she's a health coach. Uh She has gone through a lot of different uh, careers uh, at this point and having landed as a health coach now, um, she did anthropology as Uh her major in undergrad. And so for a long time, her goal was to work with um, training dogs for veterans, therapy dogs. And so she's always kind of been kind of in the, in the more art end of things. I think, I think of psychology and and sociology, anthropology is more of the art side of things. And then the science side of things is the real, like, here's how your metabolism works. Here's how exercise, you know, here's the benefits and here's how it all wraps into your mental health. And so I, I would say she's, she's label you could label her as a scientist in the sense of that's her her profession um, more so but yeah she's she's always I think been a little bit more in tune to having kind of a, a balance in her life in a much more intentional way than I've I've just sort of been like, I'm in the system, and I'm going to follow it through, right? Like, I've I've been lucky in that sense as well of like, I got into a really good graduate program, I I performed well while I was there. And I got into a really nice opportunity for a postdoc, I was on a fellowship, not everybody gets that. And then I was offered a position as a faculty member. So if you break it down like that, you know, that there's nothing that says any of that was easy. But I just kind of, you know, followed step by step. <laughs> and my twin sister has been a lot more of like searching and figuring out, you know, what she likes, what she doesn't like. And, and some of it along the way was a little bit harder for her as well of finding a job, thinking this is great for a little while, but then realizing it's not what she wants. And so it's, it's been a little bit more of a turnover before she's ended up where she wants to be. So everybody takes a different path.
0: And it takes a lot of courage to, to, oh my gosh. to do what you do, what you did,
1: I respect her so much when she was, you know, she, she, when she started health, being a health coach, it was during the pandemic and she tried to start up essentially from scratch on her own. And so she was selling herself as a coach, but trying to sort of brand herself and she was running her own small business, right? Just like I said, now is what I have to do and holy cow. She had to do it all from scratch, and at least I have kind of a structure. So absolutely, it's. I think of what she does as a lot harder (laughs) a lot of times than what I do.
2: It's funny, your website mentions your sister to be the hip
1: sister, would you you agree? (laughs) So she lives in Austin, Texas. and that's just like a little bit more hip, I feel like, generally than champagne or <laughs> Um but yeah, I, I, I mentioned that as sort of just to be funny, but also that I think there's there's a lot of similarities between the two of us, but I think she's yeah, she's she's always kind of had a little bit more of that free spirit, I would say.
0: that, that, you know, that, that, that ability to just try things and just not mm-hmm. know what happens but still trying then right. Uh, I don't like this. okay, one more thing and. exactly like that um not being afraid of complacency in a way yeah
1: yeah and and trying things for the sake of trying things and also realizing that it's hard (laughs) and sticking with it Mm -hmm. and yeah there's so many things that that she's overcome that are just they're different than the things that i've had to overcome but i yeah it's it's always everybody has their struggles and she's she's done a fabulous job of sticking with what she knew she was passionate about and in the end she's here so she or you know she's she's made it to what she ultimately was hoping for and it's because she stuck with it
2: i think that notion where you you think okay at this age i'm supposed to accomplish this much and i think that's very degrading in a way yes because if you if you break out of that notion in any way you feel like you're losing or you you don't feel you lose confidence right you feel like you're doing something wrong like why, why why are things not working out for me or why am i still figuring out what I want to do right I think that's just a, a, in a way like toxic mentality to have like I don't think anyone is supposed to accomplish anything at any age Mm -hmm. I think everyone takes their own time and it's all dependent on when you find it and if you find it right so
1: absolutely sure
2: she she went through that phase to where like knowing that she it took her a a some time to get where she wanted to but the fact that she had the courage and as you mentioned, the support to reach that goal—I think that's that's all that matters at the end.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I I'm not going to be able to say it any better than that. But yeah, it's it so goes into the societal pressure kind of aspect mm-hmm. of what we were talking about before as well. Of, I'm, this isn't what I envisioned for myself when I hit my 30s, right? To to not have all these things figured out yet. But yeah, I I think it's it also kind of comes back full circle to how our mom raised us too, in the sense of there's there's a reason for everything and often life throws us the biggest challenges because that's when we learn the most and that you know the the bigger the challenge the more we learn from it and so there's there's a lot of like not so much woe is me of like oh i you know i have all these goals and i didn't reach them it's more of like i have different goals now or you know look at all the goals that i did reach Mm -hmm. and you know my perspective of of what I thought I would be when I hit this age is just different now, and there's a reason for all of it, so yeah,
2: you mentioned that um, the system seemed to work for you, right, but were there times where you doubted the system where you felt like what you wanted was was a little related to breaking out of the system in a way or do you are you are you happy with the system
1: <laughs> so yeah, this is um this gets into like how much time do you have (laughs) no it's it's a lot of the academic system is fabulous in so many ways but that doesn't mean that it's not flawed Mm. Um, you know and and I can speak a lot more to what I experience at this position that I'm in Um, the academic system touches so many levels of of people's careers so We can talk about college, right? And how some folks get left behind out of that system because the system isn't working for them. That absolutely happens. So there's flaws in the system at that level. There's flaws in the system at the graduate level where trainees, they're honestly not paid enough. So graduate students, so it depends also what graduate program you're in. Sometimes that tuition is waived. Sometimes you pay tuition as a student, you're you're a tuition paying student and you take classes very similar structure to what it was in undergraduate, um, but in in a lot of the graduate programs that are in my field and and related fields, that tuition is waived and you get a small stipend. And it's because you're you're taking classes, right? You're still student, but you're doing work on top of that, and so you're you're doing your just dis- you're performing your dissertation work on top of that. Um, these days, the stipend is. Uh, Barely enough to live on, I would say. So it's it's enough; it, it can get you by. But for how many hours you're working, mm. it does seem like oh, so much of the time, it it's inhibiting for certain folks who have other responsibilities outside of of what they're doing, uh, and can't don't necessarily have you know the luxury of entering graduate school, even though they don't have to pay the tuition, they might have to take a second job outside of work to make ends meet. You know, they might have child care duties, they might have, you know, family care duties, whatever that form that takes. And there's also a lot of, if you don't get through college, you're not getting into graduate school. And so ha- when do we end up picking up those students who fell off early on, there's not a lot of structure for that. So, so that's that's where there's a lot of issues in the earlier stages and it, it continues through through the later stages. So there's not a ton of support for early career faculty depending on the department and depending on the institution. you know it, it some institutes, some universities, some departments are really fabulous about this. Um, but some are not so much. And I think there's it, it really is hard at that early stage when you don't have your own lab independent, lab research program built up yet. When I'm writing grants, I'm writing grants, my grant submission gets reviewed right alongside the submission from this fully established professor who has, you know, decades of preliminary data, publications, that person has a track record, right? So there's a little bit of a boost sometimes depending on the funding agency or depending on the call that an early stage professor might get. But, that's not always the case. And so there's a lot of, of ways in the system that yeah, so again, this, um, I'm giving you kind of the surface level, there's a lot of nuances to all of these, these stages. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of, we don't get paid enough, honestly, as professors, no professor gets paid enough, especially when you compare it to what we would consider the equivalent job in industry. And so there's there's a lot of, of issues to that. There's a lot of service that's expected of faculty members in addition to what they're already doing. That's just an expectation. There's no additional compensation for that work. So, yeah, so it's I, I, if I were to put it in a nutshell, I would say not enough recognition of the efforts that people put in. And that's all through the levels of undergraduate, graduate. A lot of times we when we talk about this, we're talking about graduate students or postdocs even. And so they're collectively termed trainees. So they're just constantly training, right? And so we have this sort of apprenticeship style in academia still where even early stage faculty members were in you know, pre-tenure until we get tenure, we, we haven't proven ourselves yet essentially. And, and I, I appreciate how that system was set up and I understand where it came from, but I think there's factors within there that are no longer relevant to how the how modern <laughs> we've become at this point And and the types of of funding strategies and, and things that are out there these days, It's it's just it looks quite different than the classic apprenticeship style that it was built on.
2: So what needs to like, how can you change it? How can you make the change happen?
1: Yeah, so I think that's it's strength in numbers and playing the long game. And I, you know, a part of me kind of feels deflated saying it that way because I would love to say, like, you know, we just need to, to get out there and do things about it and, and I can do something about it. And it's not untrue to say that I can do something about it, but I think it's really going to take a push from from a big group of people from all areas too, to say, This is a problem, this, you know, to outline it and to document it and to say, not only is this a problem, but we've come up with solutions, right? So, a lot of times when you're trying to change something, you have to have a vision for what you're trying to change it towards. And it's hard because there's a lot of different visions for what would work and what wouldn't work. And for example, when grants get reviewed, they're reviewed by a panel of experts and there's a recent push towards maybe we can anonymize the submissions. So when my grant goes in and I've got, you know, two years barely under my belt uh, and I'm getting assessed right up against the, the person who has 12 years under their belt. If they didn't know who we were they could just assess the science and we'd kind of be on a level playing field that's the idea problem comes in when we have to still prove that we are capable of doing the research that we're proposing to do and so that starts to get a little bit harder when this person's saying well i've published this many papers and here they are right and then suddenly they're not anonymous anymore And same thing. You know, it doesn't matter which one you're looking at, but it it becomes difficult in some of those ways of like, okay, well, what if we did this? Well, there's problems with with proposing that. And and a lot of it comes down to salaries, too, of, you know, how how can we give better vacation time and, you know, treat our our trainees as more than just trainees? Um, And that's complex. That's really complex. A lot of times if I want to hire, you know, a, a staff scientist or a research specialist or a postdoc, it's the university, HR, that dictates how that job is essentially laid out and what the salary, you know, areas are for that person and what the benefits are that they qualify for based on the title. And so there's really not much that me as the PI, as the principal investigator, the professor, the one who's leading the lab, there's not much I can do, unfortunately, mm-hmm. as just that one person. And so that's why I say it's gonna take playing the long game, but with a lot of people to all of us come together and say, this isn't right. I should, as someone who's running my own research program, as the boss, right, of, of that, I should be able to say, well, I'm going to hire the person who's qualified and I'm going to pay them what I think they should be paid. And some of that also comes down to, I can't afford (laughs) to pay them. Right. So I'm just starting. So I can't afford to pay what somebody who has, you know, 10 grants maybe can afford to pay someone. And so then you generate a bit of competition in the sense of, of, You know, the qualified applicants are always going to go to the ones who have more money to pay them. So then you run into an issue there, too. So, yeah, it's it's complicated. Mm. Um, But yeah, play playing the long game and I think being vocal about these issues. Right. I'm maybe two years ago, I wouldn't have had a ton of confidence to sit in front of in front of you in a recorded session and say all these things. But I'm I've seen enough of it and I know where those cracks are and and where things start to fall off. And and you can see a lot of it in the the fact that there's a huge push across the nation now within academic systems for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And there's a push in a lot of other institutions as well, but within the academic institution, especially, of we're realizing we've lost people along the way. Why don't we have enough diversity in leadership? Why don't we have faculty members on our staff who are as diverse as our student body. And so I think that it's through the years that has, you know, you've had people who are championing diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we've now been able to say at the, you know, leadership level, this is a problem and we need to invest in fixing it. And so I think, you know, it's, it's kind of that one step at a time, keep pushing, keep talking, keep voicing you know the issues and also saying what if we did this what you know here are the possible solutions because if if you just say this is a problem and you don't offer right. solutions nothing really can get done
0: in, in a way it's like being like your sister in the, in the sense of like <laughs> trying many things and, and also right. being, having the courage to, to try it yep and in, in, like you said I, I i appreciate the fact of being vocal of those things mm-hmm. because there seems to be this trend of like self-censoring for some reason uh like this this fear of mm-hmm. not being yourself and not speaking what you actually think and if you don't actually do that um you know most people even though they they're feeling the exact same way they don't say anything because of no one says anything and, and it's like a you yeah. know like propaganda it's not like telling you what you think right. it's telling you what other people think want you to that think. you think so mm-hmm. it's just like the whole a whole mess
1: absolutely yeah i think that it comes down to the societal pressures that we were talking about before as well. That's a lot of times why people stay silent is because either they think that they're going to get shot down or they think they're the only one who thinks that, who feels that way. So we have in, in, in academia, especially, but I I think in a lot of, of professions, what we call imposter syndrome, right? And it's that feeling of I'm the only one who feels this way. I'm the only one who, is kind of inadequate in whatever way that you're fearing that you're not up to par. And that's never the case. Everybody feels imposter syndrome. So clearly (laughs) there are more people that feel the way that you do. And there are more people who wonder about these things and feel like there should be something that's voiced. And yeah, strength in numbers, I think, is the more we speak it, the more, you know, it's going to become a lot more accepted Mm. to talk about these things as well.
0: Yeah, I mean uh, there's some sort of joke is that you know, something is true you not know, because of whether it's true is it's true because of how many times you hear it. Mm-hmm. So in a in a way you're you're right. And it's similar to songs, you know, like the song we like is not because they're good. I mean they're good. But we like them a lot more because of the we more we it. hear them. Mm-hmm. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: it you're right. And it, it, it's it's hard. But um do you think these institutions are quote unquote fixable or do you think we need new ones? Mm. Or would you even consider doing a, a new sort of type of institution if you were to be created?
1: Yeah, that's another great question. I would say, you know, a lot of times to be successful in changing something, you have to be in it. And mm-hmm. so that's k- kind of how I feel as well of, you know, I, there are a lot of people that I know, even some of my own friends who, you know, went through a graduate program, around the same time that I did, who kind of became disenfranchised enough that they said, all right, I'm out. I'm um, I'm going to a job that's going to appreciate my skills and going to a job where I don't feel stressed all the time and where I actually make money that I'm owed. And I think, you know, there's there's absolutely something to be said for that. They have every right to feel that way. And I have felt, you know, throughout my training, I'd be lying if I didn't say that I had considered getting out of academia as well. But, you know, understanding the caveats and the and the kind of underbelly of of a system that you're in is one of the ways of understanding how to change it and how to improve it as well. And so I think being in it, I see I still see some fabulous people that are in these systems, too. And I think so many people are in it for the right reasons. Right. And, you know, it's it's a matter of understanding what can be done, what's broken and what's not broken, because I think there's a lot that's not broken as well. So, yeah, when you say, you know, is it fixable? I think it's fixable. Is it going to be easy? Probably not. And, you know, is it how broken is it? It's not that bad, <laughs> you know. I think there's also a way of, of we when you're in it, you always see the bad things, right? You're always like, oh, but this could be better or this could be better. I think the big picture is academic institutions. You know, we're on the cutting edge of research. We're, you know, we're we're sitting here in this beautiful studio and this beautiful building on campus, and you know, we have access to so many things, and and we're able to have a chance to sit down and talk about these things and a lot of that i think we should never take that for granted so so there's absolutely some fabulous fabulous things about the academic system i think there's more good things than bad if there was another system you know to kind of get out of this one and re-envision it entirely from scratch i'd have to see what that looked like i guess before i'd be able to say yes or no to something like that. I think sometimes it really does help not to say like, okay, there's nothing we can do to, you know, this is a goner. <laughs> we got to start over. Not to say that, but sometimes it does help to to say, okay, let's, let's just wipe the board clean and start from scratch. And even if you're just envisioning, okay, we have blank slate. If we were to create, you know, the ideal system for not just for education, but for research and for for new ideas, and and you know how do we bring in all the things that we want to bring in? Sometimes it does help to to do that from scratch. So.
0: And in, in a way, that's also a way to force the institutions to rein you know reinvent and and, right. and and do that because a lot of the time like interchange not as much, but once there's a strong competition, oh. Yeah, it's working, so I'll switch
1: up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think there's there's examples of that in DEI initiatives, for example, diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives that have worked on some campuses and a lot of as soon as it's like, oh, yep, that was a success, we're gonna start doing that too. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it is, yeah, of like it, it putting putting the model out there and that can be adopted by other institutions.
0: But there, there's a lot of uh, new institutions that are coming out. Uh, a lot of them are, are usually focused on more liberal arts, humanities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, I'm sure you'll hear them in a couple of years once they start focusing more on it, in science. Uh, but it's a lot of interesting things that people are doing. People that feel the exact same way how you feel. And, and I'm excited because who knows what will come out of that, That's those type of efforts. Right. And yeah, who knows, who knows.
1: I think there's a lot to be said too of- the learner these days, you know, the student looks so different than what that student right. looked like before. And I think the pandemic has also brought out some silver linings and some things of we can, you know, kind of flip things on its head. Yeah, and, it has
2: forced you to like rethink yes, a lot of things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so ed- delivering education or even what education looks like, right, is I think changing a little bit as well instead of, what we think of as, you know, you have credits that you have to complete, you go to class, you learn the things that you learn, you get your grades, and you walk away with your degree. I think that, you know, flipping the classroom on its head idea is happening a lot more in some really successful ways.
0: And, and a lot of the times you have to force the, the professors or the school. Uh, like, like, personally, I'm working on this project that um, a lot of the writing for, like, gen eds and things like that a lot of them are just meaningless. I mean, people are doing it and, and people like start to hate writing. I mean, I love writing, yeah. I write every day, but a lot of these things you just make you like just hate. Your, your. So right. what would well, it what look in a world where people are able to do this seamlessly in seconds and teachers cannot do anything about it? So they would be forced to do something else that would actually be focused on learning or something.
1: Mm-hmm. That,
0: that's something I'm working on with AI and things like that.
1: So uh-huh. it, it becomes
0: a way to it's an experiment to see like, yeah. Would they actually like change, or would they just like look away? Oh, I don't care, or something. Uh, so uh, <laughs> let's see. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I'm excited. And there's a way to force the system inside the system, and like, okay, are you gonna change, or are you gonna like, like, mm-hmm. or like, it's like a Benjamin Franklin thing. It's like join or die. Yeah. Like, are yes. you gonna join, or are you gonna like, die? Right. So. Right. All right. Uh, what's going on with uh, fatal microglia?
1: <laughs> yes. So what I look at where my research concept you know the the idea that i've built my program on is because it's one of those things that we still don't know yet questions so this is about neurodevelopmental disorders so autism and schizophrenia are two of the most uh, well-known examples of neurodevelopmental disorders but it can take many shapes of just intellectual deficits or cognitive decline um or you know just inability to perform at 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 the regular, what we would call the normal level. So, there's a link between inflammation in utero, so when that baby is developing before it's born, to the risk of these neurodevelopmental disorders. And so, that's where the term comes from is neurodevelopmental. So, uh, with origins in that early developmental period when the brain is still developing. And so, that link is, is actually quite strong with certain pathogens. And in fact, I, I unfortunately think we're going to see an uptick in some of these disorders now with the Colin. COVID pandemic with women who experienced a, a severe enough inflammatory response to having COVID-19 disease. So the inflammatory pathways that are happening in the mom. We can kind of break this down into to two different categories. There are certain pathogens that cause a very, very severe response, but that are also transmitted directly to the fetus. And so, if you ever hear in pregnancy, you know, pregnant women should avoid cold cuts, sushi, um, that's because of listeria. That's a, a bacterial pathogen that's really, really highly pathogenic and can also be transmitted directly across the placenta to the fetus. So there's a few Zika viruses, another one, so that's a virus, but the microcephaly, that small developed head, um, is one of the kind of classic indicators of of, uh, Zika vertical transmission. So on the other category is non-vertically transmitted pathogens. So this is influenza virus, which is what I study and In most cases, I would say COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 falls in this category as well, where it's it's very less likely that that pathogen is going to reach the placenta. Um, So there's varying degrees of severity. And so I study non-vertically transmitted pathogens. So the really interesting question, um, and this is based in epidemiological data as well, is why is it that... When a woman is is pregnant and she gets infected with these pathogens, they're not transmitting directly to her child, her developing fetus, but that fetus is still impacted. Mm. And so there has to be a way that there's that communication uh, that's disrupting how the brain is developing early on. And so that's what we're trying to answer. And so what we know enough about is that it's definitely the inflammatory component, the immune response that's mounted in response to that pathogen. And... The developing brain actually, so this is also what's really cool about biology, is that inflammation and your immune response, it gets kicked off when you have a pathogen, anything foreign, or if you injure yourself, stress is also another trigger. Um, And the interesting part is even aside from a pathogen response, these molecules are circulating in your system to a certain level, and so they're also produced and circulating in the fetal system and developing neurons respond to them and actually are these signaling molecules are used quite differently in that early developmental period. And so these cells in the brain, these early neurons or microglia are able to respond and are actually that immune kind of profile helps dictate how that brain develops. And they're really, they're there during healthy neurodevelopment as well. And so this is the idea is if we're tipping the scales in one direction or the other of those inflammatory signals because of the maternal immune response, what is the consequence on how that brain develops? And so that's the question that we're trying to answer is, is there a kind of a permanent way in how these neural circuits are forming? Because this is a really critical period for that brain growth and development that can lead to lifelong, you know, kind of deficits in circuitry function in the brain that manifests as these neuropsychiatric disorders. So it's really complex because autism and schizophrenia, they might have some crossover in the sense of how the pathology itself is defined, you know, the 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 actual, you know, if if you look at the brain of a schizophrenic patient versus the brain of an autistic patient, there might be aspects that are similar, but there's also aspects that are quite different and one of those is when the disease manifests. And so schizophrenia it's generally an adolescent or, or early adult onset. Autism is much much earlier. And so there's there's a lot that we don't understand about those disorders themselves as well, you know, and on the clinical side we're still figuring out Can we intervene pharmacologically? You know, are there are there drugs that help with the symptoms uh, of these disorders? And there's a genetic component that's also highly complex. There's an epigenetic component that's highly complex. But it's not enough. None of none of those are enough to explain the disease fully. And so the fact that we still don't even really know how the disease itself forms and, and manifests. Makes it even harder to figure out how you know what we're looking at can be risk factors that could trigger something like that. So so that's where the question comes from.
2: Why is it only the brain that gets affected? Why, like, does anything happen to the other organs that are also being developed? Or
1: right? Yeah. So that's a great question, and the answer is yes. So so it's the focus is a lot on the brain. So one thing I will say is is well, there's there's two things. We're talking about risk factor. So it's not to say that any time a pregnant woman comes into contact with a pathogen, then her child is just pretty much guaranteed Bound to, to yeah. you know, exactly. So that's not what we're saying. We're just saying it's, it's one of the risk factors that mathematically has been shown to be linked to these disorders. No guarantee. Um, and then the second thing is it's, it's subtle, I would say. It's you know the changes that we're looking for. It's not as drastic as as a lot of the changes, for example, that I was talking about with um, the vertically transmitted pathogens, and that a lot of times that shows up as as actual congenital malformations. And so that microcephaly is one great example. I'm focused on the brain, but there's a lot of people that talk about how the immune system is also developing at that point. Uh, of, of that child and early on um, postnatally as well. So there's, there's predisposition to a lot of cardiovascular disease, allergies, um, how the immune system functions, um, autoimmune disorders. Actually, one of the um, kind of early theories is called the Barker hypothesis, and it's named after the, the person who first thought of this, and he was talking more about metabolic disease of, uh, and he was studying famine. So famine instead of a pathogen exposure during pregnancy, how that impacts the child as they develop later on. And these children that were in the womb during a famine condition are much more likely to have cardiovascular or metabolic diseases. And so, yeah, it's not just the brain that's impacted. It's absolutely lots of other body systems but there's kind of a, a subtlety or a severity scale, also that I would say. So famine is, you know, a pretty severe example of of a condition that's that's really really off of what the homeostatic state state would be. Um, and there's also part of what I'm investigating too is 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 there a severity threshold with how sick does mom really have to get
2: Right, a before? Threshold or
1: yes before we start seeing these these impacts on on the developing fetus. so I'm I'm looking focused mostly on right at kind of the time of impact like can I trace this back to like when 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 do things really start shifting and changing? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why I'm focused on the fetal brain, but there's a lot of work that's been done in the early postnatal era area and then also later on in life and a lot of times these behavioral, Outcomes that are indicative of of human psychiatric disorders. We're measuring these in in animals. Rodents are the the most common, uh, and so obviously all of that comes with a, a big grain of salt because you you can't really you definitely cannot diagnose a psychiatric disorder in a rodent, but you can do behavioral tasks and sure. and kind of probe to see what the normal behavior is right with the animal that was that was not exposed to infection early on prenatally versus the animal that was and how do they differ in their behaviors? And you can look at social behavior. You can look at, um, you know, particular behaviors that we know are driven by particular brain circuits as well, and kind of trace that back to those brain areas. So, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's definitely a I I really like to kind of sit in that uncomfortable nuanced uh, subtle area because in my mind, that's kind of what biology is all about of like, you know, it's not black and white. We like to put things in a box and say, you know, this is pro-inflammatory, this is anti-inflammatory. And, you know, they never really cross over. In reality, it's all on a spectrum. And so I think there's, there's absolutely, there's a severity, you know, perhaps there's a threshold, but maybe that threshold is actually a scale in and of itself. Um, And yeah, so, so that's, that's kind of where I am in my research. Is is kind of feeling out where where that threshold is. What's going on, if anything, that we can really point to in that early early period to say, is this lifelong? Can can a child bounce back too? Because that's another major major question. Of you know, the placenta is really a, a just a wonderful organ that protects that developing child from so many things and. A lot of my early research on this is actually showing that the brain developed just fine if it's a moderate infection. So, so that's also really, really interesting to me. And, and half of what's exciting about the research that we do sometimes is what we would call, you know, quote unquote, negative data of like, well, we, we disproved our hypothesis. But that can be just as exciting or even more interesting sometimes than when you, when you follow through and, and prove your hypothesis.
0: Yeah, in a way, like the goal of science is to be wrong, not to be right. <laughs> So exactly. Yeah, I think you, you, you may be onto something really big because um, especially in the U.S., there seems to be just a huge cases of like autism and, and all these disorders like HDHD. And mm-hmm. I mean, I just saw um, a couple of weeks ago. There's about 80 million people with um, medicated with HDHD. Mm-hmm. We have no idea how this happens. We we have no idea.
2: It's I mean, there were it. factors like all the lead that was like mm. emitted in the 1900s. And all of those factors also played a role in this neurogenetic like, disorders. And like people are seeing the effects now. I think that's why it's more in America because a lot of like industrialization and all of those factors also played a role in how the babies that were born now will turn out because their parents were affected when they were born. so.
1: Yeah, transgenerational toxicology is a whole, you know, there's, there's so many factors, right? I study pathogens. I mentioned stress. I had done some of that in my postdoctoral work toxicology, you know, the, there's so many things that, that can have an impact. So, yeah, it's 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 a complex, complex why thing do you
0: to think, try to um, understand. Inflation, I, I don't know, inflation, inflation <laughs> plays such a role in, in biology because it shows up everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you like, inflation? like Like, how do you see it from your eyes? Yeah, yeah. So, it's it's
1: a. I ca- This is kind of why I fell in love with this field, okay. too. So, I... I loved neuroscience as an undergrad. And so when I thought about doing graduate school, I thought I definitely want to do something neuroscience related. You know, behavior was what I was really interested in. But I didn't really think about immunology so much. And it was interesting, but it was kind of, you know, when I learned it in college, it was sort of like, you know, when you have a disease or when you, you know, when there's a virus or bacteria, that's your immune response, you know, that's when that kicks in and, you know, it, it clears everything up. And so when there's no problem, it's just kind of inactive, you know, it's waiting in the wings. Now we know that's really only half the picture and that these cells perform really, really principal functions in the homeostatic sense as well of non disease states. So that's what fascinates me about this is that, and similar to when I was saying you can't really put anything in a box in the sense of this is always anti inflammatory and this is always pro inflammatory. I think there's, it's so what's half of what makes it exciting is that's not true and that the immune system is always alert, right? You're in absolutely, you can talk about the sense of, you know, the, a lot of times when the immune system is taught, it's taught, you know, your immune cells are your soldiers, you know, they come in and they defend the body. That absolutely happens if you're exposed to something and there's, you know, there's basic sickness responses that you can point to in the fever response. And, you know, if you're vomiting or, you know, that kind of thing of of getting rid of that pathogen and the stages that that takes. But I think this the idea of inflammation, is even more prevalent these days because of what we have developed as a society as as homo sapiens we've developed way faster than the evolutionary kind of Mm catch-up growth can maintain so we've grown up in systems you know that the species has has developed we're still utilizing things that we would have utilized in the era of like hunting and gathering and like early you know dark ages of of early civilization and so um robert sapolsky talks about this a lot he's an author and and a professor at stanford of of one of his books is why zebras don't get ulcers is because a lot of our modern diseases it's because this the everyday stress or sedentary behavior or you know chemicals that we're exposed to things that the homo sapien you know species was not necessarily developed to endure we were developed to be able to you know kick in our system if we're running away from a lion our stress systems going to kick in and we can get away from that lion and then we go about our day with the stressors that we have now they're chronic there you know there there's also kind of no release it's not like we run from that lion and then we go about our day we have these you know we're driving to work and we're stuck in traffic and that's a little thing that upsets us or we're you know we have a deadline for a presentation or something at work and then there's constant work stress there's family stress there's pressures of of all kinds there's you know finances and and things that are constantly going on in our brains in this modern society things that we just didn't deal with back back in the day. So I think that's really what fascinates me a lot about the, the area of research that I'm in because it's kind of modern diseases that never occur first off in species other than humans, like right. ulcers, <laughs> um, but as one example at least. And then also in the sense of a lot of our, our modern diseases are a function of how the society has developed. And, you know, a lot of it's because of sedentary, more sedentary behaviors. A lot of it's because of the stress, the chronic stress that we're under and and the things that we're exposed to and the things that we just, the the body hasn't necessarily evolved to cope with. So there's a little bit of that. I think it's also when you're talking about is, you know, do you like inflammation or is inflammation a good thing? I think it's it's often tagged as, you know, the danger, the the bad thing, but there's there's a lot of good in the sense of how on a regular basis, the immune system has to be vigilant, but also is involved with signaling between tissues and maintaining and, and kind of helping to balance things out. And so a, an entire lack of that immune system is or, or you know dampening of the response in a way is is also bad so that's how i think of it
0: yeah and, and i see it, it's yeah i mean there's a lot of work in uh, longevity research and mm-hmm. infl- uh, inflation again inflammation seems to be uh, a, a, an important thing that keeps um you know the, the research from moving forward mm-hmm. but um yeah, it's like, it's like you say, it's, like, it's a beautiful thing because of how it works, but also mm-hmm. not a beautiful thing because of the things that it causes. But like yeah. you said, a lot of it has to do with our environmental things that are, that are causing. Uh, and it's like, it's like we, uh, but usually how people, humanity would advance would be somewhat, you know, linear with our biology. But for some reason, we just develop way too fast that our biology didn't have as much time to catch up. So that's a very interesting point that i, I haven't really considered before so
2: thank you for
1: yeah. sharing that yeah Steph.
2: there's a documentary called the social dilemma it talks about the same thing where like why so many people are struggling with like social media and like mm-hmm. anxiety and mm-hmm. all of that because our human brains are attuned to like um care about the other what others think and what the society right? around us is thinking but and a lot of that we're getting more and more exposed to with all these social media apps like oh how many likes am I getting what yes. people are commenting right but our yes. brains are not at a stage where um, they can like I don't know in a logical way comprehend all of that data and like process it in a way that's healthy for you so that's why people get so anxious and like get depressed and right. all of those things also like play a factor with yeah that's what it reminded me of And you mentioned that
1: yeah yeah I think I think it's absolutely a factor and, and another thing that I, I kind of didn't touch on so much but like all these chronic stressors like maybe we're worried about how many likes we're getting on our mm. post right that activates the stress system mm. and that can activate awesome. inflammation <laughs> so so low grade inflammation chronic is certainly not a good thing right. it's not to say that you know there's there's kind of healthy low grade inflammation and unhealthy it's generally unhealthy to to be in a chronic inflammatory state so absolutely, we have some things that are working against us. Um, I think the interesting thing of every system is that there are, you know, the inability, again, to put anything into a box of nothing functions in a vacuum, you know, the way that one system could be impacting another system. And you're saying, well, this thing's not bad. Well, it's activating something that happens to be less healthy or disease inducing or, you know, whatever it is. And sometimes it's that in and of itself is okay but the amount of time you know the chronicity of that of how often we encounter things that make us stress give us anxiety and could cause inflammation uh it's if that building up is really where the issue comes in too. So it, it's, there's a lot of subtleties to it because there's there's a lot of times actually that stress can dampen the immune response. Mm-hmm. And so when you when you are feeling really stressed, you often are more susceptible more vulnerable. to, yeah. yes, to, you know, if, if you're in college and you're stressing over an exam, this used to happen to me every, <laughs> almost every, you know, semester where I would get tonsillitis or I would get strep throat or something. Mm-hmm around the holiday break because I'd been pushing, pushing, pushing right up until I could finally take a break. And then, you know, my my kind of anxiety was able to, you know, go home (laughs) and and then suddenly I'm hit with something and my immune system is not ready for it because it's just been chronically dealing with these other things, which is. Stress is not an actual pathogen. So so yeah, it's there's it's it takes on so many forms. It that's exciting to me, right? And so I, I often tell my students too of if I'm teaching as well of you know, students who wanna go to vet school or, you know, wanna wanna do something in science and and if this doesn't excite you, like maybe consider something else. And it's fine to admit that too, right? We were talking about before, like knowing who you are and what you want and what you want to do. I'm just super fascinated by the science and by all that stuff. And so for me, that's a necessity of the job. And if it doesn't interest you, it feels like work, right? If it feels like, Oh, I don't want to write like the example you were giving before hate writing because it was taught to you in a way that you don't enjoy, you know, that it, It depends on how you approach it, but you always have to understand whatever you do and whatever you want to do, especially when you're learning how to do it, you should be passionate about it and you should be excited by it.
0: But um, yeah, I'm really really excited for for the research and the work you're going to be doing. Still somewhat early, but uh, I'm I'm really excited. So I'll be looking forward to throughout the years on what you've accomplished, which I'm sure will be many interesting things. Like you said, you're on the edge of the unknown, so yeah regardless of what happens, it will be exciting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we hope so. I mean, obviously it's it's it is early stages, right so and and in a lot of what I say every time I describe my research too is we're we're in animals, so we're several steps removed from the actual human condition. um and what we study is really hard to study in humans mm-hmm. as well, so that's why we're we're doing it in animals, so it, it takes small incremental improvements before we really see you know a, a big change in you know drug discoveries or things like that are i think they're they're going to be a little bit further down the road but but it's still those incremental steps are how we get to big discoveries so so yeah i i hope there will be some exciting things for you for you to find out in the next couple of years from from what we've done
2: can't wait <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give a student or any anyone Who's listening to this right now?
1: I guess it depends on what stage of their career they're in.
0: Let's say you know college. Yeah. Thinking about what to do, the impact you want to have in the world. What do you tell them? Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, so college, gosh, it can be really overwhelming. I think the idea of getting. The grades so you can get that GPA, so you can get to that dream job that you want, or if you want to go to further schooling, you know, go to grad school, go to law school, go to med school, whatever it is, that GPA matters a lot, right? On paper. I think the advice that I would give is concentrate less on that and think about more of what are you getting out of it are you still living your best life? Because college is one of the most fun times as well in your life. I think you're away from home, you're with your friends, you know, you're, you're kind of have that camaraderie and you you also have so many opportunities in college. And so I mentioned studying abroad. If you have the opportunity, I highly, highly recommend something like that in in your college years to do internships, do, you know, take advantage of the types of things that you have access to as a college student even if it's not necessarily within the, you know, specific track that you expected, that you should, thinking that you should take or that you expected to take. So, yeah, I would say keep yourself grounded in the sense of don't get so upset about those exams and about those projects that you have and due dates, you know, do your due diligence, get your stuff in on time, you know, try to perform well, but college isn't everything and you will still As long as you put in enough work, you will graduate, you will get that degree and you'll have way more fun doing it if you care a little bit less about that GPA and a little bit more about the holistic experience altogether. And, you know, it's not just about classes. And when you're in your classes, too, the more you engage with the professors, the more you'll realize we want what you want, right, as well. And so the more you put in, the more you get out. And we're approachable and if you need help ask for help right those are also ways that you can stop worrying so much because you've t- talked to the ta or you've talked to the professor and you've gotten the information that you needed and so you feel way more prepared and you feel less stressed when it comes to those you know midterms and things like that that are always stressful times so yeah i would say always keep that perspective and don't be afraid to ask for help but ask for opportunities to do new things. And if you meet somebody who does something that you've always been interested in, reach out, ask, see if you can, you know, get more experience in that, ask them how they think of it. You can always ask somebody, this is something I highly recommend if you are considering a career, ask somebody if you can get a hold of somebody who's in that career. Ask that person, what do you do on a daily basis? Like, what's your work-life balance? What's your day-to-day look like as far as, you know, are you working with your hands? Are you sitting at a desk? Are you, you know, what kind of skills do you utilize every day? Because that's really, I think, what sometimes gets lost in the sense of your, oh, oh, I just need to get to med school. I just want to get to law school. I just want to, you know, that next step. I just want to land that, you know, awesome job as soon as I get out of here without really knowing what it is that you're working towards. So finding out more information about yourself as much as you can, explore as much as you can, especially if you're not somebody who has a very clear goal and direction and enjoy it while while you can because life gets harder (laughs) when you become more of an adult. And so yeah, your college years are supposed to be enjoyed for sure.
0: I think that's a great advice. a good way to put it, <laughs> and, I, and I think like really, three really, in it as a hypothesis is like, okay, I think I would like to be a neuroscience professor. Okay, let's mm-hmm. talk to you, and then okay, what do you actually do? And then right. ah, actually, I actually don't like that. Okay, let's right. talk to a someone in the industry working on drug development. Hypothesis, uh, not that. And then you go from there and actually and doing that while actually listening to listening to yourself because you have the answers. A lot of the times, and it's exactly. kind of matching and aligning those things together,
1: right? Absolutely, yeah. And the, there's so many resources on this campus as well. So if you don't know where to look, reach out to you know the career office or the you know there's there's some office on campus that will be able to put you in touch with someone who can get you to that ultimate thing that you're looking for. This is a massive campus. There's so much diversity so many people that you could meet who are here, who are fellow students, but also who are faculty members or staff members and working on so many cool things. So yeah, definitely don't be afraid to reach out.
0: Six, I mean, small town, 60,000 people. Yeah, (laughs) I know, I know. So a lot of opportunity. Uh, So we have a section that we call overrated or underrated. Mm, So we give you a topic or a statement Mm -hmm. and you have to tell us (laughs) what you think. Okay. So the first one, art history. Mm. Overrated or
1: underrated? Well, I think it's highly underrated in my opinion, but I would say I'm biased because I really enjoyed my art history and I have, <clears throat> excuse me, I, have a, I always get this tick if I've been talking too much in the back <laughs> of my throat. Um, so <clears> throat> I really enjoyed my art history classes. And I, so my father was an architect. He had a lot of love for art and art history and, and the history of things in the sense of the story behind there's always a story behind something. And so for me, oh, yeah. that's mm-hmm. what that's what the art history is about. Of like, I don't care, you know, as much about what the final product is. It means way more when you know how it was created, why yeah, it was created. It exactly. Yeah. So I think it's underrated. Yeah, I'm
0: also taking an art history class right now, and I, I love it because it gives you so much perspective on how things come to be, and, right. and I've been writing a, a book about, I've been obsessed about flying things, so like, Kay. and so I've been writing a book about it, and there's one thing I always, I'm inclined to start from, which mm-hmm. is the history of things.
2: Mm-hmm. So now I've been mm-hmm. writing,
0: so last week I, I learned everything about drones or from like the history, technology, how it works. Mm-hmm. This week I'm focusing on rockets, and I always start with the history because without the history, you cannot put it together in a concise way, right. but once I know the history, I know the timeline. Okay, oh, at this time, the jet engine was also invented, which means they also had the technology to invent, to invent trust and these things, and right. World War Two, and it right. so just gives you such a context. So I think like yes. our our history, if you know, when taught in a unbiased, you know, neutral way of what, mm-hmm. what is what it's actually about, uh, great. I mean, it's such an underrated class. So I completely agree. Next one, Neuralink.
1: So you're gonna to have to refresh my memory. <laughs>
2: so Neuralink is basically the company, one of the companies which Elon Musk started, and okay. their 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 goal is like it's a brain implant.
1: Okay.
2: And they they did like a presentation on a pig once and a monkey once. Like a monkey was playing a video game just it was in their implanted the brain, and the and the idea of that company is to it's more geared towards the people with Paralysis or mm. all those problems, right? And they can <clears throat> yeah. this implant can help them regain that mobility in a way. Sure. So, oh, but if you if you haven't if you don't know much about it, I don't I don't yeah. know how you can answer. But
1: yeah, so I'm glad I asked you to refresh my memory because I was thinking of something else, um, more science related. Well, I guess it's all science related. What you described as well. Yeah, I'm I'm quite fearful, honestly, of things like that. Now, because I just don't think the research is there yet, um, we really still don't even know. We we can kind of map certain circuits, but we still really don't know how the whole human brain works in concert. Enough, at least, to, to really go towards manipulating it yet. So that, that's what I would say. I'd say, if I had to pick, I'd say overrated <laughs> because... I, I really think we're, we're jumping ahead of the game. And playing with something that we're really not sure what it is yet can be quite dangerous, too. I have
2: one more for you. Um, <laughs> Charles Darwin and the theory of evolution.
1: Oh, so underrated. Another thing that I think is, so the Galapagos, that was my second choice for studying abroad. I almost went oh, really? to the Galapagos. Galapagos Islands. And I still it's like on my bucket list for for life. Uh, And it's just one of those things. It's still it's a bit about like the history of of being immersed in that context and knowing, you know, the the idea of how Darwin came to this island and was able to really just observe the things around him and come up with this theory that ended up being absolutely correct. Right. And it, it bucked the system at the time. It was really, really not popular when, when his theory of evolution was released, it was like blasphemy. So that's another thing for me is like, it's not just the theory it's, it's the story it's of story, like, yeah. how how was that theory even received and how long it took before people started to kind of come around and be like, yeah, I think Darwin, this Darwin guy kind of might be right about a few <laughs> things. So and I think Darwin himself was actually kind of quite an interesting and talented person. And I, I think of him as you know he was he was a bit of an artist he was actually sketching out you know the the different beak sizes on these finches and and you know he was he was a thinker in that sense of just the in the whole way of out in nature observing things you know sketching them and and kind of trying to just understand the world around him and coming up with a theory that is the right theory <laughs> so yeah I I have a lot of respect for him. I know there's, you know, that he might not have been the best person ever, but he's, he, he's, he had, yeah, right. Everybody has their <laughs> flaws. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think underrated, especially because, I mean, I, I love biology, but I just love the idea of how evolution works. I mean, it really is survival of the fittest. And if you understand why we need to have Diversity, biological diversity, you appreciate so much more about life and about the world around you and about the different things that we have available to us. And I think humans in general, especially in society today, it's really hard to lose sight of the fact of the amount of destruction that our societies have caused to the world that we live on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, global warming. We still got global warming or climate change deniers out there and it's political and it's polarized and it's all the things that keep us up at night. Right. And so I think if it was if more people appreciated it, we'd have a lot more awareness Mm -hmm. of this is a planet that, you know, through evolution, we've become as a species, the dominant species on this earth. And if we don't realize the impact that we're having on things, we're not going to have this earth for much longer. So, yeah, I think underrated in that sense of like, if if everybody appreciated it, maybe we wouldn't be where we are as far as climate change goes. And, and a few other things, I think, of just an appreciation for the world that we live on, even if we weren't facing catastrophic destruction sure. sure. <laughs> with climate change, that we'd have potentially just a better relationship with the world around us.
0: You know, we, we started with uh, stories and we circle back to being able to tell stories, which I, you know, I, I still think, mm-hmm. and I will say it again, you do have a talent of being able to say things or, or tell stories ar- around things that, that is, is very interesting. I find that very interesting because not a lot of people has that charisma perhaps, or mm. <laughs> that ability to, to say things, so. I think that would be a, a great place to, to end, and really thank you so much for, for coming and talking and sharing your story, so.
1: Thank you, thank you both, this has been a lot of fun.
2: So, yeah, great, I mean, I enjoyed it, I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> um, and thank you, thank you for watching, um, this was, I would say, one of our most memorable conversations, in my opinion. This is a topic we haven't talked about much, like we, we haven't really d- dived deep into biology, or all of those topics so it was refreshing to like learn more about from more about it from you and discuss this as whole well. and there were a lot of topics that we covered uh that were not related to biology like we talked about mm-hmm. having courage being persever like having perseverance there are a lot of challenges that life can throw at you and um there there can be a lot of factors too that can make you feel demotivated and m- just make you feel that you won't be able to get through them but if you have the right people around you, and if you can build the right support system that can help you get through it, uh, I think that's what matters the most. We talked about enjoying your life, and that's certainly something that I'm trying to work on too. Like I'm trying to make the most out of my four years here. I realize how important and how much I'll regret after if I don't do the things that I want to do right now. And I think it's true, like you mentioned, like every person says that that once you get get become more of an adult life gets harder and
1: (laughs) adulting is hard right and there are (laughs) other
2: things that will come that you need to worry about and i think it's just um, i think it's a matter of being grateful where you are right now and just appreciating everything and everyone that you have around you so thank you thank you so much for reminding that to us
1: absolutely yeah well well you led the conversation too so it's very refreshing to to not always be talking about the science and Mm. and the you know what I do for a living. It's it's a good reminder for me, honestly, to have these conversations too.
0: You're a person. I mean, you're a professor, a but you're, you're also yep. a person, and still a person at the end with of the emotions day. Emotions
1: and, and the heart and everything else. <laughs> yes, yes. And I've been in in your shoes, right? Like that's another thing right. that I, I like to remind students too. Is not very long ago, <laughs> I was in your shoes too, mm-hmm. so I I can relate as well. And so I, and I think that you know when we're talking about my communication style, I've I've tried to to do that a lot of think about well if i were talking to me what would i want to hear and and what would have helped me when i felt like i was the only one in the room who didn't know the answer who didn't really you know know what the next steps were supposed to be what i was supposed to do so so yeah
2: perfect reach out to the professor who you think does interesting work don't feel afraid of talking to them as you can see there there'll be more be, there's a possibility that they'll be more than eager to tell you more about it than deny you anything. So take yes. take the first step of reaching out to them and asking anything that you would like to know about. And I think that they'll get to you eventually to where you need to be, or maybe hopefully direct you in a, in a direction that can help you reach where you want to be. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for watching and we'll see you in the next one. Awesome.